Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. And welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast, which is supported by Handspring Publishing. Their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Handspring has recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers' Integrative Health Singing Dragon imprint. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check out their long list of great titles, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks again, Handspring, and welcome everyone to the Thinking Practitioner. I am absolutely delighted to have a guest with me today, uh, Patty Shank, who I've been following your work for almost probably going on two decades now or something like that. I think I mentioned this to you the other day. I'm a ranking yes. member of the Patty Shank fan club, so thank you very oh, well, much. Thank for, you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today, and we're going to dive into some Interesting topics around education in our field. So uh, Patty is an education specialist. Patty, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, and and where you are in the world, what's happening there? Right. So so my background is mostly in business and workplace learning. Um, I started out in business um, related to, to uh, operations and that sort of thing. Um, and like many people who train others, um, I was good at training people, so um, I got tasked with with training. Right. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that there was a lot more to training than just talking in PowerPoint slides. Um, so I went back to school. Um, I have a PhD in instructional technology, and uh, my, most of my background in the early years was healthcare. I'm a health educator, and... Um, Still do a lot of work in that field. I, I, I love working in healthcare. It's what I know. But um, I today, mostly I help people select and implement strategies that are better for learning than um, typical. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do today is uh, Till and I it, um, got into this a little bit back on episode 17. We were talking about the issue of that um, in our field for sort of advanced level training, many of the practitioners essentially choose their own path of learning once they get out of entry level training and without a standardized curriculum for you know, a lot of the things that are necessary to work as a healthcare professional, you end up choosing a lot of your own educational options from, you know, continuing education workshops and short training, uh, short training modules and things like that. So I want to talk about some of those issues around how do we choose good training and how do we recognize things that are being uh, done there. We're going to also go into a few other things as well. So um, one of the places that I wanted to start was one of my favorite things in following your work over the years has been how much you have delved into the learning science research and and really shared with a lot of folks some things that we you know hear about a lot or thought were true that maybe weren't so true or maybe not so accurate and a couple of big things like you know learning styles you know which yeah. is thing something you hear about a lot uh, tell us a little bit about that we've you know sort of learned in the recent years that that's kind of a myth yeah um and you would not be surprised i think to find out that i've had people who didn't hire me for help because because i told them that what they were trying to do which was 
to design for everybody's learning style <laughs> was, was just not even, first of all, even if it was true, which it isn't, it's not possible. What, what we know is that um, we all learn pretty much the same way. Now, there are people who are neurodivergent. I'm one of them, by the way, um, who have to figure out how to learn better for themselves. Mm -hmm. And there are, of course, specialists on that, you know, for people with, with um, um, issues about learning. Yeah. And I, I ha actually have friends who have, have used experts on that to help their children who were neurodivergent. And um, I just figured it out what, you know, I, I learn like everybody else does too, but I also have some issues. So, so what we want to do um, with learning styles, the, the idea is that everybody has a style of learning. And if we don't use their style, they're going to have a harder time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there aren't, people may have preferences. For instance, I tend to like to read transcripts rather than watching videos, right? Reading the transcript of it because I can go real fast. Yeah. And, um, but that doesn't mean that's how I learn best. And in fact, we learn from a lot of learning science that we don't learn best the way we think we learn best. Um, for instance, video is a really, really popular means of learning, but there's also a major downside that video um, is easy to watch and hard to learn from because you can just watch it and let, let things move on the screen and not process it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the biggest things I learned from the research that I'm doing currently on video, yeah. um, that we have to put in things that make people process, um, yeah. because otherwise they can just go right through it and not learn anything, yeah. just like the movie you watched last night. Yeah, right. Uh, and I know you've been doing a lot with with um, research on, on video and coming out with some, some really good stuff with your recent um, video series. I'd like to delve into that a little bit more because we see more and more video instruction in our field um, as time goes on. So, you know, if 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 video is maybe not always necessarily the ideal, what would be an ideal or maybe what would be an ideal balance of video content and other things to make, you know, really good long lasting learning experiences? Well, in your field, body work, I think I think showing and telling at the same time has a major advantage. So it's it's probably one of the best for your field. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things um, about it. Um, one, that when you're showing somebody how to do something, show it from first person so that they can put their hands where the hands are mm -hmm. um, as opposed from, to from third person. Um, and so showing how... Um, show it, you know, or showing someone how to fix a computer or show it as if they're doing it and the hands on the screen are their hands. Yeah. Um, and and I, I thought that was fascinating, but really not super surprising, because if you show it from third person, they have to transpose the image. Right. On how well, do I do this? Yeah. What would be an example of, of uh, third person like as opposed to showing that in first person? Show, showing the person the full person doing it uh -huh. um and and you're watching someone else do it but you're not doing it from your 
from your, you know, your point of view. Okay. Um, and you could still do that, but move the camera so it's so you're seeing it as if you're doing it. Oh, so this is a lot about camera angles and the way in which that actually frames the image that you're creating there. Right. Exactly. That uh -huh. that if you're showing someone how to fix a computer rather than having a camera showing someone else fix the computer from their point of view, mm -hmm. show it from the viewer's point of view. Yeah. Um, and there's there's other things. And the big one on video for me, the big aha for me is one, figure out what insights you want to show in that video and make sure that people have to process those insights. Um, the, the most common way to do this is through stopping the video and asking questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then answering those questions. Um, you know, just going through a video and stopping them. And once they know, and you should tell people in advance, the video is going to stop and you're going to be asked questions. Yeah. Um, and it's the, the insights you want them to get from there. It's like, what did you just see Brianna do um, that might have caused pain? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. Of, of thing, you know, if that's one of your insights, if another insight is, is the position that, that someone's going to be in, um, uh, the patient just said that, that it hurt. Um, what position should you put them in? Yeah. You know, and those kinds of questions that stop, it doesn't have to be on screen. You can give them a PDF, mm -hmm. but if you put it on screen, they're kind of stuck. Yeah. Stuck processing. Sure. Yeah. Where if you give them a PDF, they may or may not process. Right. There's a lot of talk nowadays about video length, you know, in terms of is there an ideal, you know, for a while it was like big long form where we were watching DVDs, you know, of, you know, right. hour or more kinds of things. And now everybody's just into the shorter, the shorter, the shorter, the shorter, the shorter, you know, it's got to be on right. TikTok for 10 seconds or something like right. that. So is there a, is there a kind of an, um, a sweet spot in terms of time frame for um, good acquiring uh, learning content for uh, from an, an instructional video or something like that. Yes, but but um, I take it with a grain of salt. Um, the research that was done, I think, by uh, uh, GUO Go Go mm -hmm. um, in 2014, I think, and I can't believe I remember this, but things just come um, and. He, he did uh, research on length of videos for um, um, instructional videos. And he found that if they were over six minutes, they started decreasing in what people watched. Mm -hmm. um, and here's what I would say. Look, we watch video all the time. That's two hours. You know, it's yeah. entertainment, right? Yeah. Um, we know that... Previous research has said that about 20 minutes is an attention span length. Um, and I know that there's research out there that says um, we have the attention span of a gnat. Um, right. but, but that wasn't actual research. Right. Um, and I've written about this. This was somebody talking about something somebody else said in, yeah. a, in a Microsoft um, presentation. You know, That's it right. just got, it was a game of telephone where it, it got was, down. yeah. Yeah, that was exactly. the goldfish one, wasn't it? 
was not goldfish, gold. Thank you. The goldfish one. Yeah. Right. So we don't we don't really know. Um, we we know that people have longer attention for stories, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so stories can be good, but they're not good for everything. Um, but but um, you know, I, I tend to think six minutes. Look, it depends on whether the person who is watching wants the information mm -hmm. and you have provided it in as concise a way as possible, but not more concise than needed. Yeah. Right. Because right? I don't know how many times you've watched a video and said, wait a minute, what did they just do? Um, and and you rewind it and rewinding's fine. In fact, that's one of the things that I found out in the research that one of the top benefits of video is is if you put the player in that they can rewind it and we yeah. should not stop people. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it goes too fast. Um, six minutes isn't very long. I, I I would caution people who are developing video to maybe think, what's the right size chunk and what should be in this? Yeah. You know, everything that should be in this and nothing that shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, because people can make a video an hour and a half by by just you know talking and having have bringing more people in to discuss it and is that important for your learning objectives? Yeah, one of the things that I see not only in our field but across numerous fields too is sort of a a, a battle about getting away from information dumping and towards more engaging types of learning experiences. What is there anything that you can sort of highlight that we've seen from the research about, you know, how how lasting learning experiences are if they are more, you know, something that's more engaging as opposed to just spitting content out in a one-way transmission to people. Right, and it's one of the reasons why why we recommend things that force people to process, right? Mm -hmm. Um they're going to remember what they're forced to process. If we don't process much we don't remember much of anything mm -hmm. um so processing really helps that um and it can happen in numerous ways you could have a video and, and um ask questions on screen you could have have a, a sheet that they fill out afterwards and and send back into you um most of us don't love that idea um because that makes the expense of doing doing training higher because somebody has to review it. Yeah, um, yeah. But you can do that same thing by giving people, you know, at the end, click on the end, click on this and it'll take you to a page with the answers. Um, as far as in, engagement goes, the real, the real engagement from what I see is that it gives people what they need in a form that isn't problematic mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just cutaways and all these things and background music just makes the format problematic for learning. Um, a lot of people do, do background music and we're talking over that or we're trying to figure out what somebody's doing on that, on that screen. Um, if we can do simple, concise, everything that's needed for that topic, but nothing more, um, and when, when we say short, as short as we can, but not shorter, 
Yeah. You know, so so I don't see a problem with with 20 minute videos if that's how long it is to cover that one specific topic. Yeah. Um, and and adding things into it that that help them process like like um you know, what's going on here? You know, mm -hmm. what do you see happening? Um, and I mean, you could even do some engagement with with somebody on the side who's, who, who after it stops, um, talks about what they've seen, maybe in the top left corner. But again, you want to make sure that you're not having so much going on in the screen that people don't know where to look. Yeah, right. One of the other things that I wanted to to kind of look into a little bit here is that, you know, certainly I think, and this of course happened globally across the world, we saw just immense, tremendous changes in the education space because of COVID and, you know, the whole emergency remote teaching thing that came on everybody just having to rush to put things online because they couldn't, you know, it's like, okay, we got to turn this into an online course tomorrow, kind of thing, right. you know, which we know is absolutely awful. But I wanted to kind of like... Uh, see if there's any of the things that have been sort of explored a good bit in the, in the research, because I know there was a lot of stuff that was going on for so many years trying to look at the comparisons between classroom, traditional classroom and training and online education, and was there um, a benefit, you know, was one of them better than the other? And, you know, my sort of interpretation of what we learned is, like, it depends, you know, on what you're trying to do in the, the situation you're doing. But is there a difference in terms of uh, sort of, you know, acquisition of, of good learning experiences between something that's done in a classroom versus done in an online environment if it's done well in both cases? Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And there's been lots of research on that. And the research um, that I'm thinking of right now um, is the use of video with other things, right? So, so cheat sheets, um, um, some reading, you know, along with video, that video and online learning in general can be and often is better, not by a ton, mm -hmm. um, but but um, we tend to think more concisely when we're doing online for a number of reasons. One is nobody wants to sit through six hours. I mean, that's one of the reasons that emergency online teaching failed, right? It failed because that's not good teaching. Yeah. Um, making kids sit in front of a computer all day watching somebody teach. I mean, that's not what happens in the classroom. In the classroom, somebody doesn't just teach. They ask questions. They stop and do thought experiments. Mm -hmm. They have people practice. You know, in a classroom, we do all the things if if it's good and you said that if they're both good yeah. you know the problem is is that you can have bad online teaching and bad i mean we've all had horrible in-person teaching yeah. and you know so if they're both good they have to all they all have to include the right content the right focus answers mm -hmm. to questions that people are going to have the ability to practice. Yeah. Um, and people say, well, you can't practice um, um, body work online. You know, it's like you don't have to practice online. Everything doesn't have to be plugged in, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, my, one of my mentors, um, Joni Dunlap, 
um, said said to me, learning learning um, digital learning doesn't have to have a plug. You know, some of it does probably, but but you know you can go practice somewhere, um, and um, you can have coaches and and we have to practice. We have to have activities. If we're just sitting in front of a computer talking to people, um, that's not good. I mean, it's information, but it's not great, great instruction. Yeah. So as long as the research on video said that video instead of instruction, of good instruction was, was slightly worse. Mm -hmm. Video with the other stuff was slightly better. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with video, yeah. um, except that, I mean, there's some things that are harder to teach in video, like thinking skills and that sort of thing that, and I don't know, I, I've had uh, videos where, which could have been put into a, a two-page PDF that I would have understood better. And I don't know whether it's just because I'm neurodivergent, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, but um you know, we just have to do the same things that so the classroom, the, the K through 12 classroom involves lots of stuff. Yeah. And they replaced it with somebody, somebody talking at them. Yeah. Well, of course, it didn't work. And our kids, kids suffered, you know, yeah. but we really can't blame them. I mean, they didn't have time to get trained. Mm -hmm. Did you see, uh, have you seen in the, in the research on, on video in, in comparisons, uh, if you have, let's say, you know, a lot of times we have in our field, you know, something that might be moderately complex topics around, let's say, you know, anatomy and physiology or some things that are more complex. Is there a significant difference in terms of reading text uh, as opposed to watching content in video in terms of, um, you know, acquisition and, and being able to really uh, understand things that way? Well, I mean, it it depends. Um how how good the video is. Um, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but but um, when learning from text, there's things you can do that you can't do with with video. And on video, you can do things. So so it seems to me that that and and I'm I'm going off of because I haven't read um, research on on one versus the other, but I have read research on both mm -hmm. um, and they have they have different capabilities um, so I'll give you an example like one of the things you can do with text is you can have a table of contents and if you write that really well so people know what's in there and how to find something quickly mm -hmm. um, um, you don't usually see that on video but you can do that on video and it's not hard to do yeah. Um, you, you just start out with, with a table of contents, um, and people can go back to the beginning and click on something and it'll take them to that segment. Yeah. So that's, that's certainly possible. Um, there are things that are hard to understand unless you see them mm -hmm. and videos certainly much better. I mean, to me, one of the best things would be. Uh, PowerPoint, not PowerPoint, a PDF with embedded videos and, and you could move through the thing in order or go back to things earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I've been playing with that a little. Um, 
there's a problem. Some of that's really hard to make accessible. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and I really don't want to create inaccessible um, training. Yeah. So yeah. so um, you know we're we're getting to tools now that that can can take what we've said and put it on the screen for us. We don't have to go through the the problem of um, exporting the audio out and importing it back in a, a, as, you know, there's tools now. I mean, our tools are getting better and better. Um, you know, that so that's a problem uh, that, that a lot of PDFs with lots of media in them. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking that would be, that would be a great, great way to do it. But, yeah. but um, yeah. So one of the other things that we, uh, seem to have encountered a good bit in our field is as a lot of the educators were sort of forced to go into this um you know online education thing during the pandemic and a lot of people stayed doing that kind of thing is they a lot of them didn't have a you know fair amount of technical knowledge of what goes on to produce more complex learning experiences so there was a lot of production of simple video and pdfs and things like that and oftentimes that makes a learning product where the teacher is absent um, at the end product. It's you're just loading this onto the web and a person can go look at it anytime they want to and see things anytime, but there's nobody to ask questions to. And so how important do you think that is in terms of a good learning experience to, to be able to have access to whoever created the course or the instructor or some kind of mentor or coach around doing that? Right, that, that's actually a, a pretty complicated question. Um, the The issue of having a teacher as part of the training is nuanced mm -hmm. um, and seeing the instructor um, on one hand it causes cognitive load on the other hand if the instructor's really into what they're teaching um, it, it increases engagement right yeah. so if it's simple um, what's going on on the screen is simple. Having a teacher there who is really an engaging person themselves um, can be really helpful for engagement. Um, one of the th and you asked the question about who do who do I ask questions because I always have questions when I'm watching videos. Pretty much, it's like, well, what about this and and how would I do it in this circumstance and um, Asking, allowing people to ask questions is really important for their learning because we know any misunderstandings that people have completely color everything else they see. Yeah. So they may not get it. They may get the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I've done with my own course, I teach a multiple choice questions course. And I was teaching it um, with a lot of live se sessions so that people could ask me questions. The problem was I got people from Asia and we couldn't sync time zones. And I had someone from Australia who was watching the live sessions at 1 a.m., which is not okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so what I did instead is, is put in a discussion forum mm -hmm. um, and I monitor it daily you know, probably three, four times a day to see what questions people have. And I answer them. Two effects from that. One is you can ask a question anytime. Um, it's not, it doesn't have the engagement 
Mm-hmm. And, and the research is clear about this. Um, asynchronous discussions don't have the engagement of synchronous discussions. They yeah. just don't. Yeah. Um, and so, but people can get their questions answered. There's another effect. Um, the price of my course went down by a third. Mm-hmm. Went down by two thirds. Uh, you know, it, it's two thirds less. Yeah. Um, so, um, because I didn't have to to be available, you know, every few days for mm-hmm. for two hours. So, yeah. um, I, I suppose you could also have a thirty minute, um, um, you know, office hours. That's that's what I was looking for, where where you're available to answer questions again. If somebody is like, and I have this in my course on a regular basis, it's like, you said this, does that mean, you know, and, and I answer it that day and it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) I had that completely wrong. Well, what would have happened with that person if they didn't ask Mm -hmm. Um, and they didn't get an answer? The rest of my course would have not made a whole lot of sense. Why is she doing this when she said this? Yeah. You know, so I think I think asking questions, the ability to get quick answers, um, quick help with technology if they're having problems. Um, and and by the way, I, I get very little te- in terms of tech questions, which either means people know how to how to use these things um, or that the the system works fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have run into problems with with they're at work, they're trying to take my course and my um my quizzes don't work. Mm-hmm. They're coming from Google and that's locked down. Yeah. You know, so so I'm dealing with that as a technology issue. Um, but um you know, quizzes, by the way, are and when I mean quiz quizzes, I mean something that doesn't doesn't have a grade, you know, it's just like, help you remember, help you figure out if you understood mm-hmm. so that, you know, if you need to ask a question yeah. um, um, throughout are really, really helpful. In, yeah. in, and of course it's, it's something we do in the classroom. Okay. I'm going to stop right now. I'm going to ask three questions. Okay. Hold your hand up. If you know the answer to this one, you know, that sort of stuff, stuff we do, in a in per person in person classes, we don't tend to do online. We should do them online. Yeah. One of the other things that I want to to ask you about here too is this. I know this is not unique to our particular field, but it certainly happens for us a lot. Which is that a lot of the people who end up teaching a lot more of the advanced training programs or teaching in the schools for entry level training programs were originally practitioners. And they were practitioners who then migrated into doing a teaching activity, but didn't really, we don't have a track or an academic course in our field for people to learn how to be good teachers. And so my question kind of is, number one, how important is that in terms of, you know, looking at some of the learning sciences and how do you get other people to learn more about being a good teacher so that they can really help the practitioners learn better? That's a really good question. And it's it's hard to teach and it looks really easy. You just talk, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um and um I think I think the onus should be especially on organizations that do a lot of teaching with 
with uh, practitioners. And that's where I came from, right? I was a practitioner, but I realized really quickly, I didn't know what worked. I didn't know how much I could talk and then what should I do after that? And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, just what, what was important for people to do afterwards? What activities were, I didn't know any of that. You know, I thought I started out with thinking because I was put in a training position, you know, I just talked to people. It didn't work. You know, it yeah. doesn't work. Um, it works a little, but it doesn't work. You know, if they're really interested and asked you a specific question and you answer that and they get it and you don't have to show, um, you know, there's just all these things. So like um, a faculty um, faculty in higher ed or community college or in a big organization that does a lot of teaching, um, the onus, I think, is mostly on them. Now, yeah. are they going to do it? They don't do it. Um, so, so, you know, I quickly realized I don't know how to do this well. Mm -hmm. um, people liked me because I was funny. Um, but, but people liking you isn't the end result you want. You want yeah. them to be able to do what you're teaching. Yeah. I think that's a really big one that, because <clears throat> we seem to have this, I'm not, certainly not only us, but there is certainly is a challenge of that division between, uh, entertainment in the, in the learning experience. And, and, you know, a lot of people, when they go to continuing education workshops in our field, will just say like, Oh, this was great. Or, you know, like, Oh, this is a, this is going to be a great trip. This is a, you know, we're going on a cruise in the Bahamas to go to class and to learn all this kind of stuff. And they try to make it a wonderful, fun and engaging experience, which definitely checks the box on, you know, interactivity between participants and, you know, that, that sort of experience of socialization, which is an important part of learning. Right, it is. But then is it really checking the box on what are the outcomes that you get out of that learning experience in terms of really being able to apply those things uh, appropriately, you know, and right. I don't know, you know. I read some research recently about, about um, workplace le leadership training um, and how they, they tend to be fun and you leave and you, and if you're re really deep minded, like I am, you say to yourself, well, that was a fun day. What can I do as a result yeah. of it? Nothing, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. it was fun and is fun enough. And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. um, if it, you know, if it's instruction, maybe fun is okay. Sometimes fun is not um, because it's very serious and it's hard. You talked about complex learning. That's hard. Mm -hmm. um, and people don't tend to think of that as fun. Um, but, but we're there to teach people to improve their skills, not just their knowledge. Knowledge, and, knowledge is usually very important, but the knowledge allows them to perform skills. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, specifically because there's a lot of times in all of our work where we have to make decisions decide what to do next, all that stuff. And that's using knowledge and that's a problem solving, um, a decision. These are, these are skills that come from having adequate knowledge. Yeah. Um, it's complicated again. And, and um, I remember when I was younger, somebody asked me in the middle of a 
big presentation in a room full, maybe a thousand people. Um, how hard is edu- is learning anyway? I mean, you just listen and you learn. <laughs> and and I had to decide, is it, you know, do I rip this person apart? Well, of course, no. Yeah. And I said, actually, it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started talking about um, sensory memory and working memory and long-term memory and how does something get in our head so that we can recall it later? Um, and he came up to me later. He said, I had no idea. I thought it was just talking. Yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. and, and I don't consider a conference presentation instruction yeah. in most cases because do we practice? You know, the the boat trip might have small groups, you know, maybe 20 people and you, you're practicing. But a thousand people, we're not really practicing. Um, you know, I ask questions. I may pass out a, a um, something that gives information about somebody and we're going to decide as a group and they may talk talk together in groups, but but it's not really instruction. Um, it's really it's really important. You know, like you, I don't know the answer to that. How do we get people to make instruction instructional? when they don't know what instructional means. Yeah. And so this is back to a whole thing of, of early on training teachers and educators in this kind of stuff. And again, we have no formal process doing that. So everybody's out there just kind of winging it, it seems. No, and some people are naturals, right? Um, or they seem like naturals because they're fun and everybody likes being around them, but can they go back and do it? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. It's a problem in every field. Uh, I see it in my field that in my bachelor's and master's degrees, I did not learn how anything about teaching. Mm -hmm. I learned a little bit in my PhD, um, but it was very, very theory based. Yeah. And we didn't apply it to things. Um, Schooling sometimes seems to be devoid of, of of what you need, you know. Yeah. Um, and yet, I I I had a statistics teacher who knew she was she was the best of the best. She knew what we needed in order to learn statistics. And I'm a math nerd, so mm-hmm. I love I love statistics. But I had three levels in my PhD, and I had one incredible teacher. And then the two higher levels were, so so I had to teach myself. Um, I got resources. I just jumped into it, and it's it's a hard subject, very complicated, right? So um, I'm not as good. I'm not as good as the high at the higher levels because I only learned what I figured out how to teach myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that goes to what you said early on. How do people form their own curriculum wisely? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a I mean, there's a whole that's nuanced too. It's like who's teaching and do they know what they're doing? You know, will yeah. they actually teach you? Right. Because one of the one of the challenges that practitioners run up against constantly is that they don't necessarily know 
if this is going to be a good course and, and they're expensive, you know, these continuing education courses that they have to spend money on and they, you know, have requirements that they have to meet every year to do these kinds of things. And and you want to know, am I going to get value for my money or I'm just going to go to this thing and, and I'm not going to learn anything or, or worse. This is just going to be a really bad experience or somebody's going to, you know, boring and, and yeah. I got nothing from it. And that's my biggest uh, fear when I, when I go to courses is, you know, Will I just be sitting there freaked out because because I don't think I'm going to learn this? Yeah. Um, and you know, and you're you're kind of stuck. You're in a location somewhere, and um, right. You know, I totally I totally get that. You know, I, I I've taken courses um, on just a whole variety of subjects because I'm interested in pretty much everything, um, and. Um, I went to one that was two days long and the the teacher was a psychologist teaching a specific subject and she didn't lecture for more than 20, 30 minutes before, before she gave us something to do with it. Yeah. Um, and I felt really confident that I would be able to take the next steps after leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was about family stuff, you know, it's like, Here's here's how to deal with this, you know, and and come up with a plan, and then we would talk about the plans we came up with. It it was here. Here's a major problem with teaching. People need to, and and I'm going to put this in air quotes. Get through the material. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That's not your role. Is your role is not to get through the material right. your role is i always tell people when i'm teaching this is what i hope to get through yeah. but we're going to make sure that we're going to stop on a regular basis and assess where we are assess what you're thinking assess misunderstandings um and and then allow you to practice and it's going to be at least as much practice maybe more then then it is going to be teaching people say i don't we can't spend that time well what happens when we don't you know when we don't spend the time people people don't get as much yeah and i i think in many cases courses should have um should be ongoing here's the place where we're meeting in person and if you if you've looked at any of the research on flipped learning where where we give you the content up front, we practice together and all the social stuff around how would you do it? Why would you do it differently? You know, so I can learn from you and I can learn from the instructor happens in a in person or a virtual in-person space. Mm-hmm. And then there's some kind of mentoring afterwards. Um, where we talk, we talk about, uh, we get online and, and we can we can um, talk about problems we're having. The problem is that's not our model. Yeah. It, it, it's the model of some higher ed. Um, I don't see any, hardly anybody doing that with, um, with workplace learning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that would work better. You yeah. know, if we give people something ahead of time to read or look at they don't yeah they just come to the session yeah because they're not used to being asked 
to be that involved. Yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned this, this term of, of workplace learning, and I've really watched this interestingly over the years. I've sort of had a, developed a better understanding of a lot of the, the, the learning science and the learning processes and the methods used in these different environments. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, learning software tools and things like that too, is right. that there seems to be a significant division between that, that learning that is mainly aimed at short-term content. You need to learn how to do this task because we got, you know, let's say this new um, sales system we're implementing here at this business and you got to learn a new sales system and that's some new software stuff. You you got to learn these these skills to be able to keep going in your job. That's in opposition to the training that we do in an academic environment, like the basic entry-level training is you need to learn this content and you're going to be tested on it for your licensure and then you're probably going to forget a lot of it, you know, very shortly after that point. But, you know, what happens is that we go through this basic training process for licensure and that whole thing. And then we transition the rest of our whole um, you know, career into a workplace learning model, which is going to short courses, you know, these kinds of things that are just about, you know, learn this skill or learn this technique or learn this new thing on a short piece of, of content. But there doesn't seem to be a process of, of validating learning really set into there, baked into that kind of model there. And I was wondering like, how important do you think that is in terms of trying to validate what people get out of a, a learning experience more like that? I think it's really important. Are we going to do it? I mean, it's not done. You know, I teach people how to write valid and reliable multiple choice questions so that they can certify that their instruction works. It's important for two people. It's important for the person learning. Um, but again, usually we're validating something on the short term and not the long term. Um, and if they're not going to use it right away, they're probably going to forget a great deal of it. Um, it's also really important. Look, if we teach people how to do X or Y, we need to know if our instruction works. Yeah. And if it doesn't, we need to fix it, right? So, so um, validating, and there's lots of ways. One is ask at the end of a uh, of a module or at the end of a uh, of a course. Um, you don't have to use multiple choice questions. You can, if they're there with you, you can ask them to do X mm -hmm. and watch them. Um, it's it, the reason multiple choice questions are used so often is they're super efficient compared to that. Um, and the reason I decided to teach people this is because if you write them poorly, it's just total garbage. Mm -hmm. And almost 85% of a licensing exam for nurse anesthetists had significant, 80% of the questions had significant problems. Uh -huh. It's like, yeah. I don't want someone giving me anesthesia yeah. who right. doesn't know how. Yeah. Right. You know, and and that's how common this is. This is so common mm -hmm. that they are poorly written because they are difficult to write well. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I I use that one example a lot because because it's awful. Yeah. Right. I was having a conversation with some educators uh, just last night when we were talking about, you know, ad advising them on, on curriculum building in their school and saying that, you know, a lot of times I see teachers in our training programs being put in this position of having to say, here's what you need to know for the licensing exam. And here's what's reality. Um, and, you know, 
that's a difficult place because we know that a lot of things are not done well on the licensing exam, but you have to train people for that. Otherwise you your school ends up with very poor, um, you know, statistics on, on pass rates and that kind of thing. Right. And you don't want that. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's true. Um, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a real answer for that one. Um, yeah. if everybody, who taught others got together and said, we need to teach the right way um, using the methods that we know work. Um, and we need to assess the right way, um, knowing the one, uh, knowing how we can assess whether somebody got what we intended them to get. Um, it, it's more time consuming. Yeah. Um, so people aren't going to do it. You know, I don't have an answer for you. They, you know, they do it more in schools because that's part of, in K through 12, it's part of their job is, is teach, then assess, teach, then assess, you know, yeah. um, and they don't always do it well, mm -hmm. um, but it's their culture, right? Yeah. Uh, it's why it takes 12 years. Uh, maybe we could maybe we could fit it into a three year online series, but but no, it's we know that that people need to know how to learn. They need to know how how to do things, you know, all sorts of things. So yeah. it's done that way. Um, I I think there's probably I've thought about this a lot that there's probably a sweet spot mm -hmm. where we don't have to go overboard but we shouldn't go underboard either. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I, there's a lot of times where, where people will hire me and I say, well, there's no practice going on. There's no, you know, practice is, is not optional. Mm -hmm. You, we, we remember and we learn from practice. Yeah. Um, and, and the feedback from that practice, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who just put stuff online and call it a course. Yeah. Um, and it's not. It's 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 information, and it might even be really good information. But as a teacher, how do you know what I got from that? Because no two people come come to instruction with the same previous knowledge. Yeah. The same lens through which they view what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So. This really is, it's, it's like cutting hair. It's a personal, it's a personal thing. Right. You, know? yeah. you can't, you can't cut hair online. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just put stuff online and call it um, training for cutting hair. It's just, we know it's personal and you have to feel the hair and you have to look at it and, and you have to do things. Yeah. Uh, instruction is personal. And I have a problem with, instruction that isn't personal yeah but i also get pragmatically how are we going to get all this done yeah. I, here's, here's what i think one thing is we teach too much in everything we teach mm -hmm. if we could come up with these are the things you must leave with um and We'll give you a little optional stuff if you want it. Although for, for people who are new, optional is bad because they're like, it's too much. You know, yeah. it's, you're overloading them. Mm -hmm. If we were much more clear about what we wanted to teach and what outcomes we wanted to have happen 
and spent a lot of time on that. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to include these four things, but these three, three things are out and they'll have to be later. Yeah. You know, we want to make sure these three things are done or four things are done mm-hmm. and we're going to assess it. If yeah. we took out all the optional extra crap um, stories about um, bad patients I've had, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff, just people who've been in, in the room and, you know, um, were problem. Just take it all out mm-hmm. later. People who are more expert can handle more stuff thrown at them because um, they hopefully have a, a correct mental model of, of of what they're doing. Yeah, and 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 just made things more concise to begin with. Yeah, one of the I absolutely agree with that. I and mean, one of the the big challenges that I would say that I have found as an educator in our field doing this with these types of shorter continuing education uh, workshop courses and things like that is that I'll um, frequently, you know, in a class of 20 people, I'll have two people who just got out of school last week and two people who are been in practice for 35 years. And you got to deliver the same thing to that whole group. It really makes it challenging to, to find out where is that sweet spot in between them. Right. Um, I don't know. There, there's times where people ask me to des- help them design instruction and I'll say, who's your audience? Mm-hmm. And so you would say body workers, right? Massage therapists. Um, it's like, what level of expertise, you yeah. know? Because what you want them to get are different, even though it's the same skill. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering whether, whether um, you know, there's part one and part two. And don't come to part two until you've been in the field for a year. Yeah. You know, that's, I, I, you know, that's just, that's just a guess. I mean, I tell people with my multiple choice questions, if, if you're right out of, out of school on this, you haven't written these yet. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't even know what I'm talking about, that you, this will be a nightmare for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are considerable skills that go beyond what mm-hmm. I'm teaching. Yeah. You know, people say, teach me to write scenario questions. It's like, I can, but not at the same time I'm teaching you what the research says about making them clear and and um, you know, mostly clear, but but the other one is make it so that people can't guess. Because if people can guess the answer, what what the information is giving you isn't what you want. Yeah, you know. So so those those two things. So you know, some stuff we just have to. You know, look, I get it. I come up with solutions and. Sometimes they're just impractical. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can even have two different things they have to practice. Um, you know, you're teaching the same thing, but you have two different things they have to practice. Yeah. You know, where where and, and they choose which which one. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, it's this is hard. I, a lot of people tell me I'm teaching everybody. It's like, well, I mean, the whole thing about figuring out what the outcomes are, does everybody have the same outcomes? And the answer is always no. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm teaching financial whatever to to this wide group of people and the CFOs in the room. And so is the person who who um, uh, puts in the information for paychecks. Yeah. 
And so everybody's sitting through something that half the people already know and the other people aren't getting enough information on. Yeah. You know, and that again, it's, it, yeah, I don't have an answer. Yeah. It's a challenge. Well, we'll have to make that for part two, because this is certainly something that I'm very passionate about right now is looking into this, this emerging world of personalized learning of, of creating more unique kinds of learning experiences that are tailored for where you are um, personally right. at this, at this point. So that's for me, a very fascinating um, edge of where we're, where we're going in this. So, I agree. Yeah. Well, Patty, we could of course, you know, keep riffing on this for, for quite some time. I really appreciate your time today and where can people find you and find out more about uh, what you're doing and, and access any of the resources that you've mentioned here? Great. So, so probably the best place to find me is uh, on my website, which is pattyshank.com and Patty is spelled with an I. Okay. So it's P-A-T-T-I-S-H-A-N-K.com. And I'm also on Twitter and post a lot there under the same thing, Patty Shank. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for coming here to to visit today. And I really enjoyed uh, getting a chance to, to talk with you on some of these things. We'll have to, to bring it back again here. So thank you. Yep. So today's show is also sponsored by the Academy of Clinical Massage, where our mission is to help you become a better practitioner working with pain and injury conditions. You know it's challenging to find high-quality training in your location when you need it, and we bring exceptional orthopedic massage training to the comfort of your home through our innovative online programs so you can learn anytime, anywhere, and immediately help more of your clients. This year, we're completely revising all of our online orthopedic massage programs and the lumbar spine course and pelvis courses were now just released. You can learn more about these at the uh, website, academyofclinicalmassage.com. We'd like to say a thank you to uh, all of our uh, people listening out there today, also to all of our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for the video, show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and also over on Till's site at advanced-trainings.com. If you've got questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, please do email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. You can find that under Till's name, Till Luca on social and also under my name, Whitney Lowe over there as well. If you got a few minutes, we'd love to have you rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does help other people find the show, and you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word, tell a friend, and we'll look forward to seeing you again in the next one.